Special thanks to CHR Hansen, a leader in fermentation and innovative brewing solutions. CHR Hansen's range of high-quality yeasts includes Smart Bev Near, which crafts flavorful beer entirely without the alcohol. These yeasts even enable fast, climate-friendly, and cost-efficient production. We thank CHR Hansen for their support and commitment to excellence in brewing. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Berkeley Yeast, creators of diacetyl-free yeast strains. Diacetyl-free strains are bioengineered to produce the ALDC enzyme inside the yeast cell to keep diacetyl low during fermentation and after packaging. Diacetyl-free strains create the cleanest flavor profile possible, which makes them the yeast of choice for the most exacting brewer. Go to berkeleyyeast.com to read about how brewers are using diacetyl-free strains to propel their beers to the top of the podium. Grist Analytics captures and trends data across the brewery so you can see issues as they are happening, not several batches later. Get real-time feedback on the brew deck, analyze correlations from the lab, and see scheduling predictions from anywhere. Connect Grist with your ERP platform to cover your brewery from production to finance. So I, I bring them back down the stairs. I throw them in the back of my truck, and I, you know, I peel out of there as fast as a 1996 Ford Ranger weighted down with kegs can go. This week on the show, episode 300 of the podcast, the tables turn, and we sit down with John Bryce to find out how he got into brewing, what his perspective on the podcast is, and who some of the best guests have been. Please stay tuned and enjoy the ride. Hi, I'm John Bryce. I'm an owner and operator of the Lupulin Exchange in Charlottesville, Virginia. And also, I guess I should mention, I'm usually the host of this podcast, but not today. Well, Mr. Bryce, it seems the tables have turned today. I'm John Mallett, interviewing our special guest, John Bryce. How are you doing, man? I'm okay. This is, this is kind of awkward, but I'm okay. I bet it is. Well, I mean, I I kind of think it's probably pretty easy for you because I mean, if I think about it, you've been, you've been doing this for a while, and um, I think like how you know when you how did you get into this? I assume that you probably uh, you know went to college, got a podcast major with a minor in brewing science. Is that, is that how <laughs> Absolutely, things yeah. for you? <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, <laughs> how'd you, how'd you, how'd you know, like you you find yourself in an interesting place here, and this is not your first uh, thing that you've done in the brewing industry, so. Tell me a little bit about like, you know, your early stuff before you started brewing. Well, I, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia and went to Virginia Tech. I spent the summer of 1998 working as a waiter at Rich Brow, 
which I guess was my first exposure to craft beer. And then after graduating in 2001 with a finance degree, zero desire to enter corporate America and extremely reluctant to leave Blacksburg, I wound up spending a summer working as an apprentice in two of the four breweries located in Richmond at that time. And I should thank the two brewers who took me in and inspired me. And they were Mike Rumsey at Main Street Beer and Scott George at Mobjack Bay Brewing. But that short time hanging around and working in those two breweries was absolutely life-changing. I, I fell in love with it. I just became completely enamored with the aromas, the physical labor, having a, a tangible product at the end of a hard day's work, the mix of art and science that I yet, you know, I really didn't know anything about brewing science yet. So this is all very mysterious to me. After, after that summer, I go back to Blacksburg and, and I'm just like, this, I've always been, I've always had this entrepreneurial spark. I had, I'd actually started a business, a software business when I was in, in college. Um, that was a total flop. But, you know, I always was, I had that entrepreneurial itch, you know, and I get back there and I'm like, wait, why isn't there a brewery in Blacksburg, you know? And, and at this point, you know, we're like 2001 now, right? So at this point, most college towns in Virginia have one, maybe two breweries. And uh, so I said, okay, well, I'm going to figure this out. Like, I, There's no brewery here. I'm, this is an opportunity. I'm going to start one. And so I started just researching. You know, that I spent that year working in the restaurant and researching what it would take to open a brewery. And I start home brewing at this feverish pace just to, to, to get better at brewing and to, to learn, right? And most homebrewers start off with extract kits, right? And I was so confused by that because I had had this experience over the summer in real breweries and they weren't using extract in these real breweries. They, they, they were doing these all grain mashes. So I, I kind of had to quickly figure out that, okay, I'm not even going to mess around with that stuff. Let's, let's jump ahead and do what I was used to actually working in the brewery. Those were my first experiences in brewing. And then that's where sort of things kind of really got going. I, I spent that whole year building a business plan and trying to figure out um, how, to, how to open a brewery. And I have to say that I was much more of an entrepreneur than I was brewer at that time in my life. So you're, you know, at this point, it sounds like you're pretty young. Like you yeah. barely don't have to drink and you're starting this brewery. Like, what was that like? Yeah, yeah no, uh, that is um, kind of laughable. I mean, I was, I was 23. I didn't have a lot of money or anything. It's not like I've, you know, was some spoiled rich kid with, with tons of money to start this fancy brewery. And so I had, I had worked with the small business assistance center and I, I had put together this, this plan and this loan package and everything. And I go to the banks. I got, offers from I, mean, I went to six different banks and I got offers from every single one of them to start this brewery. Now, wow. granted, it was not a lot of money in the grand scheme. I mean, I was way underfunded, uh, you know, but it was a lot of money to me. And this was a time uh, when breweries were unheard of. This was back when you had to really, at least in that part of the world, you had to explain to people what pale ale was and why they should even give it a shot. So, um, so I put together this, this business plan and get this small business loan. And I find this <laughs> this really junky used equipment uh, out west. It was out in it was located out in Lander, Wyoming. And so I fly out there, and Snake River Brewing ended up buying the brewery that had gone out of business. And so I was buying this equipment, and they they ended up putting like nice equipment in there and, and whatever. Chris from Snake River was very helpful and 
really, really kind and um, probably just saw that I was this deer in headlights, you know, trying to figure out how to, how to do this and um, kind of helped me load up this equipment and ship it across back to the East Coast. Uh, I cobbled this thing together and someone who was um, instrumental in helping me, uh, Alan Williamson, who uh, was the brewmaster at Legend previously, and he kind of had struck out on uh, doing consulting and, and he helped me a lot. And Alan was just, um, he was great. He was like uh, just very practical and understood that we were going to do things on the cheap, you know, and uh, he helped me do so many things. And one of the funniest things we did was um, we built this, we built a keg washer. We basically took some two by fours and like, you know, built a frame for it. And then we took some old Hoff Stevens kegs and cut the tops off of them. And those were our chemical reservoirs. And we took all this, you know, all these different pipe fittings and stuff that we ordered on McMaster and hooked up an air compressor to it and water lines and CO2 lines or anything. And so we built this completely manual keg washer. I wish I had pictures of it still somewhere because you would just laugh so much if you could see this thing. It sounds like it was the very best of technical uh, engineering uh, coupled with, with fantastic efficiencies uh, all manifest yeah. on your first, on your first rodeo, huh? That's right. There is a lot of lot of thriftiness going on there. So, John, just to set the stage around this, this is like 2002, and there's not a lot of breweries, and therefore there's not a lot of uh, regulatory expertise that's going around. Did yeah. you? I can remember, uh, you know, some interesting stuff happening back then. Did you have any experiences? Yeah. So, where I was, there were no other breweries um, anywhere nearby, and that year was a tough year for for the state budget. My the agent, the ABC agent that I used to get licensed was retiring at the end of the year. And the state had decided not to refill his position because, hey, there's no breweries here and we can't afford it and whatnot. So for, for young people listening that have been in this industry only for you know five or 10 years, things were completely different. We couldn't have taproom breweries. And Virginia is a three-tier state. The only way to sell across the bar was to have a brew pub, right? And so I, I, was, I was in an industrial warehouse. You could have a, what they called a hospitality room. That meant that you could give away two ounce samples of beer and that's it. You couldn't, you couldn't sell someone a glass of beer. So there were some interesting challenges there. Craft beer was so counterculture down there at this time that when I went and tried to talk to wholesalers about, hey, I, I'm going to start this brewery, they... They just weren't interested. They were just like, unless you're selling Coors and and, and Budweiser, no thanks. And so I couldn't get a, a beer distributor to sell my beer. And so I came up with the following solution. And this was based on, I had met a man, really nice, interesting man. He was, I think he was in his 60s. His name was Bob Trimble. And he had started what I believe may have been the first licensed nano brewery. And this is before the term nano brewery was a thing. And Bob had cobbled together a brewery out of 55-gallon stainless steel tanks. This was in Tazewell, Virginia, in the middle of nowhere. It was called Clinch Brow was the name of the brewery. And this was he did this in the like the mid 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 to late 90s. And he had the same problem. He couldn't get a wholesaler to carry his beer. And so he couldn't figure out how was he going to actually sell this beer. And so he actually went to the Virginia ABC board and he had his lawyer write them a letter and say, hey, um, I can't get a distributor to pick me up. And based on my interpretation of the regulations, I think that this is okay. And I'm asking you to confirm this. And so basically what he did was he had his wife incorporate 
a distribution company. And he figured that he could be an unpaid employee of the distribution company. So then that would enable him to make the beer and then to also deliver it to the local bars and restaurants. And he was kind enough to give me a copy of, of his correspondence with the Virginia ABC board that indicated, yes, your, your interpretation is correct. And so I had that in my back pocket, knowing that if I got some resistance, I could just be like, okay, here, here's my plan. So I, I did kind of the same thing. Of course, I was not married. I was 23. But one of my best friends, uh, Chris Bernhardt, who I had gone to high school with and college and everything, um, he agreed to help me in this way. And so he incorporated Blacksburg Beer Company when I incorporated Blacksburg Brewing Company. And we, we built a little 8 by 10 room inside of the brewery and I subleased it to him. And technically, the beer had to come to rest in that 8 by 10 box before it left left the brewery. And technically, I could be an unpaid employee of his and I could put that beer right in the back of my personal pickup truck and and drive it downtown and deliver it to the bars, which which I did. You know, it sounds crazy, John, but it was, uh, I had the time of my life. It was so much fun. One of the more interesting moments, I mentioned that ABC had abandoned me, right? They, there was no agent down here. So what they did was they had the nearest agent come check on me. And the nearest agent was not happy about that because he was not very near. Uh, he was in, he was coming from um, I believe uh, Stanton, and it was a, a ABC agent named Roger Stevens. The way I met him was, um, I had uh, I had I had asked the first agent, um, John. I, you, you might remember I, I remember seeing like movies and stuff when I was younger, where uh, old movies where like a beer distributor would show up and like deliver kegs for a party, right? So you, you've seen that before, probably, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so like my, I, my, one of my thoughts was like, I was like, oh, could I do that? Because I'm in a college town and like, you know, keg delivery seems like a pretty good idea. Right. And so I'd asked the first agent, like, Hey, can, can I do this? Is this legal? And he looked it up and he said, yeah, actually your brewery off license has this delivery provision. And, and this is, this is a real thing. It's kind of not dissimilar from what a convenience store has. And, and yes, you, you could deliver beer. And I was like, okay, awesome. So we're, we're running this keg delivery thing. And it was, I remember it was graduation weekend, probably of 2003. I had a bunch of kegs loaded up in the back of my little 1996 Ford Ranger uh, that could barely go up a hill full of kegs. Some of them were, I was going to be delivering to, you know, bars downtown and some were part of this keg delivery thing. So I go to the address for one of the keg deliveries and it's this apartment complex in, in, called Fox Ridge. And uh, I have to huff these kegs. There's a couple kegs I have to like, you know, haul them up, up the stairs to like the second or third floor and I'm huffing and puffing and I knock on the door and this, the kid who answers the door, he looks like he's like 14. And I was like, this isn't good, you know? And I look inside the apartment and the apartment is completely empty and it's clean. And I was like, this is weird, you know? <laughs> you know, some people, would, I was like, okay, well, it's graduation weekend. Sometimes people move, right? And they move and they have a party. But it, the whole thing was kind of weird. And so I look at the kid and he looked really nervous. And I, and I said, okay, well, I got, the, I got the keg registration book here that needs to be filled out. You know, the yellow sticker that you slap on the keg. And um, there was no furniture. So I said, hey, let's go in the kitchen and use the counter to fill this out. And he's like, okay. As I recall at this time, they were trying to cut down on, on, on non-authorized sales. So you had to fill out these. Oh, yeah stickers yeah. which washing kegs afterwards you know the bane of your existence right but it's like this huge documentation trail on every keg 
Yeah, exactly. Which I have so many memories of like washing kegs and you want to walk over right when the steam cycles run and that's when you want to rip off the sticker because it exactly. loosens up the, the adhesive, right? Yeah. So I got the I got the keg registration book and um, I asked the kid to show me his ID and so he, he shows me the ID and he's underage. And I was like I was like I was like you're you're underage and he he looked like he was about to pee his pants. So he just like kind of shook his head and I was like, "Well, I can't sell you beer if you're if you're not underage." And and I was pissed cuz I was sold out that weekend. You know, I could I could have it was graduation weekend. I could have sold that beer well, somewhere sounds else. Sounds like you just humped these kegs up. <laughs> like, yeah, and I wasn't happy about that right. either. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, so I, I bring them back down the stairs. I throw them in the back of my truck, and I, you know, I peel out of there as fast as a 1996 Ford Ranger weighted down with kegs can go. And I get back out on the highway, and um, a few minutes later, um, uh, I get pulled over by an unmarked car. And I was like, oh man, I'm speeding because I'm in a hurry and I'm mad. And so I pull over and the guy walks up to the passenger side of the car away from the road. And I roll down my window and he's plain clothes. He's got a little badge on his belt. And he says, Mr. Bryce, that's how he started the conversation. I haven't shown him ID or anything. And I was like, how does this guy know my name? You know? And, uh, and he's like, Mr. Bryce, I want to, I want to talk to you about, you know, I need to see keg registration stickers for all these kegs and whatever. And, and I was like, what? Uh, okay. You know, and he starts t- saying all this stuff. And then he's finally, he's like, well, I got some heartburn with some of the things you've been doing. And he's like, I can't be but so mad at you because you denied the underage sale, but we're going to have a nice little talk. And I was, and, and that's when it clicked to me. I was like, oh, he was on the, uh, he was in the next room, you know, while this was going on. The, the state of Virginia paid to rent out an apartment and they put up a, uh, a kid who probably got busted for drunk in public or something. And they made him order this keg and, and go through this process so that they could try to catch me selling underage, uh, you know, which was just, I'm like, wow, is that a good resource? Is that a good use of our state funds? So, you know, so you didn't sell it to the kid. What did he have heartburn about? Yeah. So at one point he actually said that he was under the assumption that my whole business plan was to sell beer to underage college kids. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was unbelievable. But one of the things that he didn't like is um, being a resourceful 20-something with no money, but tons of energy. I had to come up with guerrilla marketing, grassroots type of things. I didn't have this big marketing budget, right? And so... Uh, one of the problems I ran into was when I would try to get, because we were a draft only brewery, right? And so we're trying to get tap handles at these different bars. And the problem I'd run into is I'd, I'd go in, I, you know, I'd, I'd meet the bar manager and get to know them. And they'd, they'd be like, okay, yeah, we're finally going to put you on tap. We're going to, back then you're fighting for like the Killian's tap. They're like, okay, yeah, we're going to, we're going to put you on next week. We just got to get through the last of this quarter of a keg of ice house that we have left. The distributors are, you know, they're not dumb. They, uh, they know what's going on. And so they're, they do a great job of, the, oh, oh, sorry, come back next week. They slid another keg in there before I was able to tell them we were going to take it off or whatever, you know. And so I'd run into this, like, just get stiff-armed repeatedly and, 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 and run into this situation like, oh, yeah, you know, well, they, they gave us another keg and, you know, come back next week or whatever. So my solution to that was I created what was known as the, the BBC Beer Death Squad. Basically, what we did is we had a small army of uh, friends of the brewery. And I would, uh, when I'd get a tap like that, I'd say, okay, well, I, you know, how much do you have left? And they'd say, okay, well, you know, we got a third of a keg. And I say, okay, if I, uh, if I finish it off tonight for you, will you put the beer on? They say, well, yeah, sure. And so I'd put out an alert to the death squad and everyone would show up for happy hour. We'd knock out the keg and I'd have the, the other keg of my beer ready to go with the tap handle. Like, okay, it's gone. Here you go. Put it on. And that's how we would get tap handles. 
it worked quite well, but this nice man from the ABC was convinced that I was funding this, that I had enough, somehow had enough money to, to pay all these people to do this. And that I, you know, I was violating all these laws by doing so. And I was just like, man, you, you've got no clue. Like I couldn't afford to buy beer for all these people if I wanted to, it's just not happening. So, so there was, there's other interesting adventures like that, but that was, um, that was one of the things that they didn't like the most. Wow. Yeah, the, the very idea that the uh, that the brewery is not set up to buy beer, but to sell beer. Yeah, mm. yeah. Wow. So you know, at some point, uh, you know, you, you know, you you ended up moving over to a brewery that I knew well, which is Old Dominion. How did that transition go? What, you know, talk to because you got a you got this business, and how do you end up at Dominion? Yeah, so I say there's this there's this theme in my life of probably not always having the best timing, and so probably the early 2000s was not the best time to open a brewery in Blacksburg, Virginia. The beer culture was easily five seven years behind the DC area. I was making pale ales and stouts, and 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 people wanted you know blonde ale or whatever was about as far as they were going to go. So. It, it just wasn't, I was too early and I've done that. I've, I've had other businesses where I was too early that the, the business I mentioned earlier that I started in college, we, we tried to start the, basically it was like monster.com, but with video pre-interview screening at a time when everybody was still using 56K modems and uploading video just took like half a day, right? So I've, I've had a lot of ideas for stuff that were just like too early. And I would say that this brewery was was absolutely one of them. I think if I'd opened this brewery five to seven years later, it would be a completely different story. But I struggled financially. I mean, it was um, I had I had you know debt from my from my from my loan, and you know I was I was basically just not fast, but I was just like slowly digging the hole deeper. And it was a very uncomfortable feeling to be working as hard as humanly possible. There were times where I was working 18 plus hour days, just trying to do it all myself. And I had great support from friends who would pitch in and this and that. I just, I was underfunded. I was undercapitalized. I was inexperienced. You know, the smart thing to do would have been to go get more experience in a brewery before I'd done this and go raise enough money. And I mean, if I could meet the 22 year old, 23 year old John Bryce right now, I just punch him in the face. You know, like, you know, what are you thinking? This is stupid. But uh, on the flip side, I wouldn't have, ch- I wouldn't trade anything for that experience. It was, um, you know, very defining and, and, and awesome in, in so many ways, but financially not so much. And so I got to a point after a couple of years of running the brewery where I was just like, okay, this isn't getting better. Um, I don't really see a path out of this. And without like going, going into, you know, kind of, doubling down on my debt, which I'm just not willing to do. So I made the really uncomfortable, difficult decision to close it down before somebody made me. So I, I put the equipment in the storage and I said, okay, I'm going to go get a, a job, a real job in the brewing industry and, and, and come back. I'm going to, you know, I'm not done, but I, I'm going to hit pause and I'm going to go get some experience and come back with more experience and more money and, and figure this thing out. And so um, the first job I got was at um, Capital City Brewing Company in, in Arlington. Uh, that was back when I'm sure, you know, Bill Madden was there. And, and at the time, my friend Kevin Kozak was there. And I was there for a little while. And then I ended up at Dominion. And Dominion was a great experience for me um, because, uh, it, well, number one, it was a much larger brewery than anything I'd, I'd been in at that time. I think we were making around, it was definitely over 20,000 barrels and it might have been 
thirty-ish. Um, yeah, it's not sure, but it was that time of the, for yeah. that time. And, yeah, yeah. So it, it was pretty big compared to anything I'd seen. I, I wouldn't say it was state of the art. There were parts of it that weren't that clean, and there was some older stuff there. But generally speaking, they were doing. They were a pioneer. We were counting yeast cells. Other people weren't doing that. You know, <laughs> it was a real operation, and we had serious equipment there and serious packaging lines and it was not a small brewery and so i always tell young brewers go work in the biggest brewery that will hire you because um, you just get exposed to so much and you see everything that was a great experience for me i worked worked for a while i spent a lot of time in packaging there and and learned a ton there um i worked the um <laughs> i worked the the infamous 3 a.m to 3 p.m brew house shift for a while so you would you'd work three days in a row so i did like wednesday thursday friday i think boy, that'll, that'll wreck your, your schedule. So I did that for a while. Um, and, and that was a great experience. And then I think one of the things that was really defining to me, um, a name you'll recognize, Scott Zetterstrom, who had previously worked there with you, great guy, and, you know, a real engineer mindset. So Scott, um, he, he was no longer at Dominion at this point, but he was, he was doing his own thing, doing consulting and taking a, ripping a lot of breweries out of places and moving them and setting them up and, and this and that. He would hire Dominion guys because of the schedule I just told you, we would have this like, you know, we'd have a lot of days off, right? And so he would hire Dominion guys on their days off to help them with these rigging jobs. And so this for me was perfect because I was like, okay, I can go work on my days off and make money helping Scott. And then I can pay down my debt from the, from the brewery faster. And so I did that. He had a big job in Baltimore decommissioning the um, the former uh, Theo de Groen's Baltimore Beer Company. What great beer! What great beer they made there! Oh man, I just yeah saying that those thinking about the Weizenbach. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. And it's a shame that that place didn't make it. And you know the reason it didn't make it is because it was because of Baltimore, because of the city. They they built all this Section Eight housing really close to the brewery, and they. As part of that process, they they basically overhauled. They basically had the roads shut down. So, even if you were a lifelong resident and you knew where the brewery was, to 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 figure out how to get like which roads you had to turn which direction on to get there, it was this maze that you had to take to actually get to the brewery, and that's what shut them down. Like um, people just couldn't get there. And there may have been other factors too, but that was absolutely one of them. So this equipment was purchased by some guys that were um, going to start a brewery in Denmark, if I'm if I recall. And so Scott had been hired to to you know decommission it and rig it up and and ship it over there. So he was trying to piece together a few guys to help him. I was like Scott, I'll, let me just do I'll do the whole thing. Like let me help you the whole time. And I I just loved working with Scott. I mean he he's the kind of guy who like. I felt like he was paying me to learn, you know, like he, he, he was very kind with his time and he would sh- show me things to make sure I was doing things the right way. And, and then also you're taking apart this stuff. You really learn how it works, right? Some of this equipment, maybe you don't see every day. So that was a really uh, formative experience for me. So I had time at Dominion, time in the Northern Virginia scene there. And then I ended up back down in, in Central Virginia at Star Hill, which was uh, at the time was, was pretty small. Yeah, those were, that's what some of my early days um, in the industry you know, that's kind of, kind of what it was like. All right. So ding, 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 John Bryce, you're on the hot seat. It's lightning round. When you think about the the audience, who's the audience? Who are you talking to? Who are you trying to connect with? What's the base? I think the, the, the success of this show is because of my litmus test, which is, and, and I'll, I'll caveat this with occasionally we allow for, a diversion of some kind, whether it's, I guess, this episode or 
you know, um, Greg Casey on very interesting brewing history or, or Ron Pattison. Like we've done some things like that that are a little bit of a diversion, but still very tight keyed into brewing and still impactful. But generally speaking, my litmus test is, will this episode help someone make better beer? That to me is the most important thing that it's that the listener learns something that helps them make better beer. And they, that they don't have, that they don't have to be a brewer. They could be working in a lab. They could be all over the supply chain. But to me, that's the most important thing. And the second somebody tells me, you know, we have to talk about something else and that litmus test is, you know, doesn't apply. I'm out. So when I think about, you know, you, you, there's an assumption that there's a base level of understanding that your audience has, right? What's that bit, you know, like, where would you put that? Is it like, I, you know, I've never, I've never met Malt before. <laughs> right. Yeah. It? No, it's tricky. I, I think we move it around. I think we do some episodes that are geared towards people with less experience and others more. Um, you know, I think even if you do a deep dive into some a complicated subject, somebody's going to learn something. John, that's how I felt when I first started attending master brewers meetings. I remember going to some of my first meetings um, where it's a bunch of AB guys and Miller Coors guys talking about stuff that I just don't understand. Like I have no idea what they're talking about, right? But um, but you get in the room and you listen and eventually you learn a few things and you ask some questions and then you learn more, right? How do you, like when you think about uh, some of the very technical stuff that's out there, you know, you could be speaking to a very small cohort of organization and i think one of the things that i hear you do is ask the clarifying question that 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 helps to raise the base level of knowledge like do you do you go in with a any kind of plan of like hey here's what i want to get accomplished with this it's really hard to understand and i can you know i can make this i can help to access this for somebody who is not at that level yet you talk a little bit about that process for you I think it goes back to something that um, probably somebody famous said, but I think I, I remember one of my uncles saying it is that, you know, yeah, a good teacher is able to remember what they didn't know before. Right. And so um, I think you have to like, I have to, con- I constantly have this like, you know, inexperienced brewer on my shoulder as I'm doing this that I'm like, well, wait, we got to break things down for that guy because he, he doesn't know what that acronym is or he, we, we went too fast or we didn't, you know, so like I, I try to, I try to do that as much as possible. I mean, not dumb it down, but like, you know, make it accessible because you're right. There's, there might not be, it might be only 20% of the audience, you know, understands uh, something somebody just said. And you gotta, you gotta bring that back around. Okay. This is going to be one that I'm going to try and staple you with, man. So you've had a lot of guests. What was the most surprising guest you had? Most surprising. Oh man. Um, Jeez, I, I don't know about surprising, man. I, I um, I would say that in general, sometimes you're, sometimes I'm surprised by. Sometimes you get really smart people that are not great communicators, and sometimes it's the other way around, right? And sometimes you get people that are both. But um, it's it's, it, I know a lot of people in the industry at this point, and so usually I know what I'm getting into. But a lot of times there are guests that I don't know anything about. And you go into it and yeah, you don't know, are they going to be dynamic or am I going to have to really pull this out of them? And that's, uh, yeah, I kind of enjoy the, the, the challenge of that too, honestly. What's the, uh, what's your, the, the show that came out the best that, that you feel that has came out the best? Yeah. Um, there's a few, I'll, I'll, I'll mention just a couple of them. So I think that, um, and I'm sorry if my dog's making noise too, I'm trying to get her to calm down over here. I I would say that there's a couple, I I think that, um, one that I was especially happy with the burn episode was Carrie and and Scott Z 
that was a, a real nail biter for me because I didn't know Carrie very well. And I didn't, I wanted to be sensitive to, you know, her trauma. And I didn't really know I had read about her story, but there was a lot I didn't know about it. And my, my grand plan, which, you know, it doesn't always work out, but in that case it did was, okay, let's talk about this traumatic event. And then let's bring in this other guy who knows exactly how to prevent it. Right. And so I had, you know, I, and, and I just, they didn't know each other. And so I had them both on the line and I told her story and then we pivoted to Scott and Scott told the story of, you know, how you put a boiler uh, control in a kettle and it just came together. And I, I was, so I'm, and I think it's done a lot of good. I think it's, I think that episode has probably saved lives. And so I'm really proud of that one. It's, I'll tell you, John, I, you know, it's one of those, it's one of those episodes that I've recommended to innumerable people to say, Listen to this, listen to the impact. And when, you know, you as a, you know, brewery operations person are making decisions, there are real implications for it. And, you know, absolutely, you know, it's really, I I think it's, it was just great sort of podcast journalism that had, you know, so I, I, you know, that's one of my favorites as well. So I guess you got the answer right, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that one, and then I, I, you know, I have to mention the episode with Fritz Maytag. I think that was awesome just because it was awesome for a few reasons. One, Fritz has this iconic voice, right? Um, And then also I wanted to tell a different version of his story. Like you can get his story in a lot of different places, but I wanted to tell like the brewer's version of his story. Right. And so um, I was really happy with the way that came out. I really enjoyed it. There's been quite a few others I could go on and on. You know, one guest that really surprised me, um, I think his name is uh, Daniel Koresh, I think, but he's a guy from Guinness. Uh, we did a, yeast, uh, a story about uh, Guinness yeast uh, years ago. And that was, um, that was when something where the, the guest shows up and they're like way more dynamic than you expect. And you're just like, Oh wow, this is going to be awesome. You know? So, so yeah, some of them show up, you know, some, sometimes you get surprised and you're just like, okay, wow, this is, this is going to be even better than I thought it was. I always enjoy the, the case studies where somebody just solved a problem. They had some problem in their process, some off flavor, some infection, whatever it is. Like I, I love telling the story of of that because that not only does it help other people in the industry but um i just i just enjoy that process unfolding of of how someone solved a problem i got a truck or a a school bus that's backing up in front of me it's beeping so i'm just gonna hang hang out for a second coming up it's probably the most frequent question that I get about the podcast is, hey, what's the deal with the music? I'm John Mallett, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Brought to you by BSG. Want a natural and economical clarification aid that doesn't impact beer flavor? Then you need Cary Biofine Eco. Developed as part of Cary's Eco Brewing Range, BioFine Eco is a plant-based fining agent that improves beer clarification by instant flocculation of yeast and troop. Available exclusively from BSG, visit bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. 
Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Positively impact your process, product, and profitability with actionable insights from BrewIQ, the industry-leading real-time fermentation monitoring solution. Visit www.precisionfermentation.com backslash MBAA to start saving time and money today. BSI, your brewing partner since 1996, is your destination for top-quality liquid yeast cultures, lab services, and brewing products. BSI customizes your yeast orders for the perfect healthy pitch rate from a collection of over 300 strains. Most strains ship within seven days, but now try BSI's Express Yeast with industry-favorite strains shipped the next business day. As of 2023, BSI is proud to be a 100% employee-owned business. Professional brewers can call for a free same-day consultation or visit brewingscience.com to access over 50 years of brewing expertise. Are you sure you're getting the best deal? Visit the Lupulin Exchange where you can find every hop variety, every brand, and every vendor. Compare prices, reviews, shipping speeds, reliability, and more. Over a million pounds shipping direct from every hop merchant and grower in the U.S., the Lupion Exchange, one stop, all the hops. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. The District New York Shop Talk is February 12th at the Wild East Brewing Company. District North Illinois meets February 15th at Moore Brewing Bartlett. District St. Paul, Minneapolis has their winter meeting at Surly Brewing Company on February 15th. The Master Brewers Brewery Packaging Technology course starts February 22nd. District Great Plains holds their annual meeting February 23rd and 24th at Mark 1 Electric Company. District Northern California meets February 25th at Moonlight Brewing. Save the date for District St. Louis Top Golf Social and Technical Meeting February 26th. District Texas meets virtually March 21st. The District St. Louis March Shop Talk is March 21st at Blue Jay Brewing. The District Eastern Canada Technical Conference is March 27th in Montreal. The District St. Louis Spring Meeting is April 8th. District St. Louis teams up with the Pink Boots St. Louis Chapter May 9th at Nine Mile Garden. District Northwest meets May 10 and 11 in beautiful Hood River. The Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance System course begins June 6th. It's time to save the date for the 2024 World Brewing Congress. That's August 17th through the 20th in Minneapolis. Check out the full calendar of events at mba.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now, back to the show. Uh, okay, so here's my next question. Here's my next question for you. Um, I don't know, you know, did you have to take a class on Hertrick management? I mean, the the number of conversations <laughs> you've had with Joe Hertrick have been fantastic, and um, 
he has just got so much information and such a level of respect that uh, he's engendered. Like teasing that out of him is has been fantastic. Any any insights there? with Joe? Uh, well, it's not hard to get Joe to talk. I'll say that. Um, but he is really good at what he does. And I love Joe. I think he's been one of my favorite guests for sure. Uh, I'll say the most disappointing thing, I think you were there, John, but a few years ago, I interviewed him in Cleveland during the Master Brewers Conference on stage because he was being given the award of... Um, I'm going to totally botch. Or? It was a Distinguished, Distinguished Lifetime Service Award, I believe. Okay. And so I interviewed him on stage and it was probably the best interview I've ever done. And unfortunately, the recording got lost or botched or whatever. So I was so disappointed by that because it was so good. And I think you were there, weren't you? I, I feel like yeah. you were in the room. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, you know, any, any chance I get to listen to Joe Herdrick, I'm there. You know, just, just brilliant. Okay. Let's, uh, let's switch up. Let's switch up a little bit. And, uh, um, Talk for talk for a minute about music. Yeah, John, I've always loved that piece of music that gets played in the beginning, and I love it more knowing where it came from. I don't know that everybody knows that. Can you tell us? You share share with the audience. Like, where does that come from? What's what's the story with that piece of music? Yeah, it's probably the most frequent question that I get about the podcast is, "Hey, what's the deal with the music?" And and it's it's funny. Like some people really love it. I think there's a few people that don't like it. I mean, that's it's subjective. It's music, but um, but you know, when we were when when I was putting this thing together, um, I was like, okay, where what you know what I do for music? And um, uh, I had this friend who he was previously one of my instructors uh, in brewing school and uh, in Germany at VLB. And he also has been past president of ASBC. He's in the brewing industry. A lot of people don't know this about him, but he's in this German ska band. And uh, I, when I found this out, I was like, wow, that, that's really cool. And he, he, he's, the, he's the lead singer and plays saxophone in the band. And you'd never guess it if you, if you knew him. And you've probably met him at different events and stuff. I know you know him. And um, so uh, I, uh, I approached him during you know one of our, I think it was actually at the World Brewing Congress in 2016 when we were launching the podcast. He was there. And um, I said, hey, man. Um, um, we're going to launch this podcast for Master Brewers. I need some music. You know, what do you think about me featuring your band's music? And he was like, "Yeah, I think that's cool. Let me check with the check with everybody else." And he did, and he came back and said, "Yeah, you're good to go." And the rest is history. So I use every piece of music on the podcast is is from his band. There's a few different little clips from different songs, but yeah, it's uh, the name of the band is Rolando Random and the Young Soul Rebels. And if you go to the to the NBA podcast website, there's actually a, a link somewhere on there that says says the band name and says the different names of the songs and you can find it right there little, little, i think a little known fact is that they actually have sort of like the theme song to the german soccer team st Pauli, which is kind of like you know a, almost like a lifestyle brand of soccer and they you know they play live there it's just like wild you know <laughs> that, that here's this very well respected member of the brewing community who has this other really interesting section of his life Hey amigos, buenas noches, bienvenidos. <laughs> Sabéis que nos está bloqueando el Rolando, Rolando Mandian Soul Rebels. Now here it is, and look at that, you know. <laughs> Go my own way, never mind what it takes to get there. Take it slowly. You know, so you know, you mentioned a minute ago that this thing started in '16. Like, did did you, you know, like how did it, how did it start? Talk talk to us about the earliest ideas of this and how that all came together. In the history of Master Brewers, 
previously there was a technical director who kind of was the glue of the organization. And Ray uh, Klimovitz was the, the te- technical director at one point, and then Carl Ockert after him. And then when Carl left, um, the, the job was open. And a couple of people suggested that I might consider applying for it. And I did. When I went through the interview process, uh, at the end of that, it was very interesting because uh, I didn't exactly get offered the, the job. Uh, what they ended up doing was they decided they had two candidates and they wanted to hire both of them. And so they kind of changed the roles around and they said, okay, we're going to actually turn this from one position into two positions. And so they hired both me and Mark Sammartino, who many people will know is from uh, he's retired now, but was, um, and he's actually on the first few episodes with me. He worked for Anheuser Busch for many years. Mark's just a really smart guy, great guy, and so the two of us kind of, you know, tag team that role. And, and um, uh, he was charged with, you know, s- some of the more traditional parts of the technical director role, like the TQ and some things like that. And then I was charged with. Um, my role was to make the organization more relevant to craft brewers and to improve the health of the districts and to interface with the district officers and try to help build best practices and and, and whatnot with them. And so I was in this role and I had a lot of license to like try stuff. And it was like, okay, well, one of the things we need here at Master Brewers is like, well, let's try a podcast. Why not? You know? And I didn't know the first thing about podcasts. I knew I, I like listening to podcasts, but I didn't know how to make one. But, you know, again, that entrepreneurial spark in me took over and it's like, okay, well, let's just, let's just make it happen, you know? And, um, and so we did. And so we recorded the first few episodes at the World Brewing Congress in 2016. Mark helped me. We sat down with, Graham Stewart and Tom Shellhammer and uh, John Paul May, I think, and, you know, all these different people and that were there presenting their research and kind of just did some like, you know, little quick uh, interviews with them. And the rest is history. That's kind of where, where it started. So the expertise that you bring is, you know, with your dual degree in podcasting and brewing science, trying to merge those two. <laughs> um, you have great yeah. resources in terms of brewing science. What podcasts do you take uh, sort of chops from? What, what, do you, what do you listen to? It might be brewing, might be otherwise. What do you, you think is really well done out there? Yeah, so I actually don't listen to any other brewing podcasts and never have, partly because I don't want to like cloud my, you know, I don't want to like inadvertently copy someone else's work or whatever, right? And so I just do my own thing and that's what it is. My podcast listening, unfortunately, has taken a huge hit since the pandemic. I used to travel a lot more and listen to podcasts. These days, I I almost never listen to podcasts, which is kind of sad. But when this started, at the time, one of my favorite shows was How I Built This um, with from NPR. That's Guy Raz. Guy Raz, yeah. And um, I love that show. I loved his style. That was definitely a, a big inspiration to me. Another influential show, I, I was always a big fan of Radio Lab. I haven't listened to it in years, but I loved I, it. was very overproduced, you know, but I, I love that. Yeah, I've always said that about that. It always feels like, whoa, there's a lot going on here, man. Yeah, my wife's always like, that gives me anxiety. Turn it off, you know, but like, you know, I, I liked I liked that. I had to learn how to edit audio and all that stuff. And so I've, I've, I, I enjoy that. Again, that it's like that tangible product at the end of the day. It's putting the pieces together and, and making it all work. And so I don't like shows where they just hit record and it just whatever happens, happens, and there's no editing. Like, you know, I, I less is more. I cut a lot of stuff out. John, we all get our expertise from a bunch of different places. Could be on-the-job training, could be, you know, experiences homebrewing, could be, uh, you know, actual technical or academic programs. What have you had in your in your background? Well, I think um, I think 
this might sound a little strange, but I think if I go back to it, um, I would go way back to childhood. You know, I'm a I'm a Gen Xer through and through, which is this generation of kids that were independent. We didn't have helicopter parents and all that stuff. I was a latchkey kid. You know, I had to figure out a lot of stuff on my own, right? Um, I had spent these huge chunks of the day where between when I would finish school until a parent could get out of work and get home or whatever, you know? So I spent um, a lot of time on my own. Um, and when you're on your own like that at a young age, you got to figure out how to solve problems. This is, of course, back way, way before the age of cell phones and computers. And I mean, we had computers, but, you know, back before stuff was like, you know, the internet was uh, at your fingertips and whatnot. So you had to be resourceful. And I think that's one of my biggest assets is that I, I have that sort of built in independence and, you know, problem solving uh, functionality. I think that's kind of, um, I, I would say that's the biggest out of anything I've done in the background. It's not necessarily like the, expertise in a certain area. It's just the, the being willing and able to solve problems. John, you're a graduate of VLB. Can you talk to me about what that was like going over to Germany? What'd you learn? What was absolutely, that was an incredible experience. Um, I, I, I made that choice to go there after I'd been in the industry for a while. I would, I'd already been brewing for at least six years, I think. And I go over there and the reason I chose that program, I, I, I really, um, spent a lot of time researching the different schools. I actually have a, a blog that is still around from way back then that was called, um, it was called Ich bin kein Berliner. It was um, basically this, my story of figuring out which school I'm going to go to and actually going over there. I chose VLB because it was really strong in the areas where I was weak. It had a ton of hands-on practical work in things like microbiology and wet chemistry and even in malting. Our final exam in micro was like, okay, here's a here's a couple of dishes of yeast, here's a dish of bacteria, you know, tell us what it is. You have the you could use whatever you want to in the lab, and you'd, you'd say, okay, well, I did this membrane filtration, and I put it on this agar, and I want I want you to go incubate it at this temperature for this many days, and then give it back to me, and then I'll microscope it, and you know, so and you had to be you had to be right. The same thing for the wet chemistry piece, um, they'd give you a sample of malt, and you had to do you know, all the different Keldar tests for protein, which is this like sulfuric acid boil followed by a distillation and titration and, you know, like really kind of difficult stuff. And they'd say, okay, you know, give us that and give us your, the moisture content and like, you know, all the, some of the different COA stuff. And they do the same thing with hops. You do the lead conductance value and the, um, do the, uh, spectrophotometer on it, you know, and like, so you, you had all these things and, and, and same water chemistry, same kind of thing, you know? And, um, so they'd say, okay, you got eight hours in the lab to do all this stuff. And then, you know, we've got the results here for the sample we gave you and you got to be within 2%. And, uh, if you don't, you don't pass. So I just loved the experiences there. It was like, you know, it was like biochemistry for brewing. You know, I, I wasn't going to go become a biochemist, but I learned a lot of biochemistry specific to brewing same is true for for micro and for everything else and it was just a fantastic experience we had 28 students from 14 different countries and uh i learned a ton and it was awesome culturally what was that like for you to be an american in berlin and, and how long was that program it's, it's, it isn't like a, a week-long program 
right? No, no. So, uh, so if you're a normal German citizen, you know, you you come out of like high school or whatever, and you you do like a three year program to get the brewer and malster title, and that would be like a mix of classroom and experience. And then if you wanted to go beyond that and get your next level, would be we get what's called diplome braumeister, which is like your you know kind of like a it's like a you know i don't know somewhere between a undergraduate and a master's degree i guess i don't really know but um and that's like a two and a half three-year program depending on how much you know you might have a full you might have a part-time job on the side that kind of thing in your class a little bit here and there and then of course if you go beyond that you could be diploma engineer which is would get you a very you know um high level you know that's more like an engine engineering degree in in brewing science and so the program i did they call it the certified brewmaster program and it's basically uh, the idea is that it's the same curriculum as Diploma Braumeister, but instead of it being spaced out over a, a lot of time, it's intensive for six months. The main students that would attend this program were sent there by, you know, large breweries from all over the world. We had people in my class from the FS group and from Ambev and from, you know, all these different breweries all over the world. And so culturally, that was awesome because, you know, you, you just got to meet all these different people that had all these different experiences. I mean, we had students in my class from Laos and from Thailand and from Sweden and Ecuador and like, you know, all over the place, right? It, it was just a, it was just an amazing experience. It really was. What was it like being an American living in, in Berlin and going to school and it's kind of you think about uh, it takes some chutzpah to to get yourself over there and, and to say I'm going to do this. Yeah, is that yeah. something anybody can do? Yeah, I think anybody can do it. It's, certainly, it's a little intimidating, but yeah, I think in this day and age, anybody can do it. Especially now that in the age of like cell phones and internet and stuff, I think that seems like less scary to me. But but yeah, it was uh, it was quite an adventure. I mean, there was, but I was up for it. I mean, that's just my style. I was let's let's just you know let's let's jump in and, and figure this thing out. So the, your blog was Ich bin kein Berliner, which I believe translates to I am not a jelly donut. Yeah. So, you know, if there's you were all... going to be a jelly donut, what kind of jelly donut would you be? <laughs> I would be Mandelplunder. No, that's a, that was the, my, 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 my um, breakfast most mornings there in Germany. Um, the, uh, uh, yeah, I think, and so the whole idea is, you know, people know the whole, you know, Ich bin ein Berliner thing, and that's the, that's, you know, Kennedy's famous, uh, line. And, um, and so my twist on it was to turn ein into kind, which means no. And so the whole idea was, hey, I'm no Berliner. I don't really belong here, you know, but, um, that was the idea behind the, the blog, but um, and the Berliner is just the is just the jelly donut. It's like a Danish is you know well, you can be no, Danish. Well, the, <laughs> you can be Danish, but you could also be a Danish. <laughs> well, the the trick is in the language. It, he should have said "Ich bin Berliner," and that would mean yeah. he's from Berlin. But he said yeah. "Ich bin ein Berliner," which means I am a jelly donut. So that's yes. that's where things get <laughs> where get, things get tricky there. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Um. Oh, this has been some of these are really fun, really fun, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, who's the person? I hope they're fun for other people. They're fun for me to talk about. I don't know. I hope it's not boring to other people. Yeah, I'm sure you're going to get into this and you're like, oh my God, I get to, you know, <laughs> you know yeah, but that's yeah. the case with all of them, right? You know, mm-hmm. what, uh, you know, right now, uh, you know, you know, right now we're doing this interview. You and I are not in the same room. Uh, and, you know, technical challenges must come up. You, you any funny stories there about trying to get, you know, the podcast, the podcast that didn't come together easily or 
Yeah. Well, I mean, that might be today, right? I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, um, I, you know, one observation I'll throw out there is there's like this pattern where some of the smartest people in this industry have the hardest time with technology. And it's, it's kind of, I always know, like, you know, when, when we're having a hard time connecting, I, I just kind of think about that. I'm like, okay, this is going to be a really good episode because this person is really smart and really is going to have amazing answers. So, um, but yeah, there's been some tricky ones for sure. Um, I was joking. I was at the hop growers convention uh, last week and, uh, in Texas and I ran into, um, uh, Stacy, I think it's Stacy Williams is her last name. I think, I hope I didn't get that wrong, but, um, from new Belgium and we, we did an episode together pretty recently. And, uh, the, the, we were we were laughing about that because she was she was at home recording it you know and like all of a sudden her son is like somehow like connects to her bluetooth or something so like all of a sudden like her son talking to his boss is like is like in our recording and it was just like one of those classic 80s tv moments get off the phone i'm on the line that one jumps out at me for sure uh, another one that i'll mention is uh, i was interviewing graham stewart we're doing the interview and then all of a sudden this fire alarm starts going off, huge red light. It's like, and I was just like, oh no, am I watching Graham Stewart's house burn down? Like what's going on here? It ended up being nothing, of course. And it was, but you know, that was, uh, that uh, got my heart rate up a little bit. Wow. Um, You know, this podcast, you're, you know, you're absolutely the face or the voice of it. Um, Are there other folks who are involved at all? Yeah. So I'm glad you asked that because I really want to um, draw attention to that. So it's taken a long time to get there, but we're we're finally there. We have a network of people uh, known as the podcast, podcast working group at Master Brewers. And so it's a committee within Master Brewers. There's a whole bunch of people on it. And basically... They are now responsible for sourcing content instead of me, which is a load off my shoulders. We meet quarterly, and basically what happens is they they come up in the in between our meetings they come up with ideas based on and they ha- they have like a criteria for ideas. It can't just be like, hey, let's just do this. And we we give great preference to resources that come out of the association. So you know they they we have a big spreadsheet and they add in. Okay, hey, I went to you know, this district meeting and this presentation was really good, or I went to the annual meeting and this was really good, or I saw this webinar and it was really good. Um, or, you know, um, I went to the, the, the short course on um, the packaging course and, you know, this instructor was really good or, or whatever. So we kind of, that's the, that's the funnel, right? And so they, they go, cause you know, I can't, even if, even if I were to try to do it all myself, you know, I can't go to every district meeting, even back when I was working with Mark and I was getting paid to travel around and help districts. Even then, I, I still couldn't go to every district meeting. So one person can't do the job. And um, so we try to crowdsource content and we, we try to get these people involved and, and they're doing a great job. It's like any committees, there's there's some people that are more active than others. But um, generally speaking, we have a pretty good group of people that are passionate about bringing good content to the podcast. And I think that the more we do that, the the better things get because we're, we're choosing, we're selecting from cream of the crop, better and better ideas and, and content that's get coming out in the association. And it doesn't have to come out through master brewers. Um, but you know, we definitely give pre- preference to that. You, you know, I love li- listening to your voice and, you know, you sort of transport to a conversation with a great brewer. And sometimes I try to set, what does that visually look like? I mean, are you uh, are you in a like a, a broom closet under the stairs, hunched over a little desk, or or are you looking out over the beautiful fields? Where I mean, where are you in the world, and what is what, what's your space like? 
Yeah. So I'm here in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, a little bit west of town. And I'm just in my home. I have a, 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 an office that's just a spare bedroom that I use as an office. A lot of people envision this like fancy studio and stuff. I have very little of that. I'd really not much in the way of fancy equipment at all. I think most of the, the heavy lifting comes in the software and the, the editing and whatnot. I have, I, I think you and I have joked around about this in the past, but like my office is, is right next to the, the bathroom on our main floor. So there's been some dicey moments uh, in years past, especially like when my, when my, when my son was really little. Uh, I, I had several times where, you know, my wife used to always joke that, you know, daddy's in there recording a podcast and, you know, and all of a sudden you'd hear, you know, can somebody wipe me? You know, <laughs> <laughs> from like you know, uh, from my little son in there, so like you know, uh, yeah. So it's um, it's not fancy. Trust me. <laughs> okay. Now is this um, is is this room the is this the only activity that occurs in the room? It's podcast central, and that is, is that's it. No, or? no. It's just uh, I'm just at my desk where I'd be doing anything else. So what else um, do you do at your desk? Uh, well, I mean, I assume this probably takes you, you know, 45 hours a week, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of people think that this is my full time job, and it's not. I actually spend about four hours a week on the podcast. Uh, I've had to uh, do it's out of necessity. I've had to to strip that down as as much as I can because I have a lot of other commitments. And so I have a very efficient process that allows me to do that. But I spend most of my time on the Lupulin Exchange, which is a business that I started in uh, about ten years ago, not quite ten years ago, and that's been quite a journey. For many years, I split my time between running the Lupulin Exchange doing the podcast and then also brewing. And I finally, sadly, a couple of years ago, I had to give up brewing because it was just too many hours in too many different directions. I've got four kids too. So it's a, you know, things just, uh, I hit a wall. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not getting any younger and uh, uh, there's only but so many hours I, I can work in a week. So I spend a small amount of time on the podcast and these days the Lupin Exchange uh, takes up the rest. The exchange is what feeds my family and hopefully puts somebody through college eventually. So that's my top priority. You know, great chance to do a shameless plug for, you know, a great sponsor, the Lupion Exchange. Like, you know, how does it all work? What do you do? Should people yeah. actually use the service or not? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, it's um, it's been a wild ride. I mean, I, I started the business Back in 2014, basically out of a, a need that I experienced myself, I had gone into gone to work at Star Hill for the second time and taking over brewery operations there and changed a lot of recipes and process. And all of a sudden, I was like really long or really short on these different varieties. And that was at a time back before brewers really sold hops to each other. And you know, a lot changed in this industry really fast. I mean, the first X years of my career, I didn't know what a hop contract was. You just bought spot hops and, and that was it. You know, you'd call up Hop Union and say, Hey, I need this many pounds of Cascade. What's the price? And they'd say, Okay, it's six bucks a pound. And it's all right, you know, let's get it on the way. So that was like what the first six or seven years of my career looked like. And then we had the, the 08, 09, whatever year it was when we had the, the hop crisis, if you will. And the whole industry went from, um, you know, that was like 80% of the industry was spot. And then next thing you know, it was like 5% of the industry was spot because everybody started contracting. There's a lot of good things about hop contracts, but at that time, all these breweries were growing really fast and most of them couldn't tell you what their flagship beer was going to be next year. So predicting how many pounds of this and that variety they're going to need is what, you know, was not exactly going on with a lot of accuracy back then. I had the same experience on my end and, you know, I, when I was kind of long on these varieties, I, I put an ad out on the BA forum or whatever. And by the end of the day, I had like four or 500 emails of people that wanted to buy buy some of these hops and 
I spend like the next week of my life trying to figure out who to ship what and who's check cleared and all this stuff rather than running the brewery like I, I should be doing. Uh, I just, at the end of that, I was just kind of like, man, there's got to be a better way for this, you know? And, and, and I kind of filed that away. And then I, I watched more and more of that happen as more and more of these breweries needed to, to get rebalanced. So I kind of did a little analysis of it, what I thought the market was. And I called up a, uh, an old friend of mine from college, Shane Kunkel, who had done software stuff his whole career. And, and I, said, um, I said, hey, I got this idea. You can tell me where to go build it. At the end of that, he said, well, I think I, I'd like to help. So initially, it was just the two of us, uh, 50-50. And then, of course, like anything, it got more complicated pretty fast. And so he said, hey, I got this, this guy who's like top 100 programmer in the country who works with me. And you know, I'd like to bring him in. I said, hey, okay, that's cool. And then I had a friend that we had tried to start a brewery together and that kind of was stalled out. And so I said, hey, you want to work on this with me too? And so, so it, it kind of worked out. And, and in the early years, it was very grassroots. It was a side hustle for all of us. We started the business with a laughable amount of money. A, a lot of grit, a lot of sweat went into it. And, you know, we all had day jobs and, and then it grew, you know, and, and we were able to, to hire um, our first full-time developer back in like 2016, I think. And fortunately, the, 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 the business has really, uh, in the early days, it was kind of like the eBay for hops, but now it's a lot more like the Amazon of hops, right? And so the vast majority of listings on the platform now are shipping directly from a hop merchant or from a hop grower. And so it's really kind of, morphed into something bigger than I ever envisioned. And it, it's been it's been really awesome. It's been a, it's been a great experience. And so I spend almost uh, all of my waking hours these days trying to improve the Lupulin Exchange and trying to help brewers in every way that we can to to take all the friction out of that process and to make it the, the best possible experience for anybody who needs to buy hops for their brewery. So you're a longtime brewer. Is there a favorite style of beer you just absolutely love? Yeah. So you know, uh, from my time in Germany, I, I really have a, 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 I really gravitate towards you know clean classic German lager styles, right? Fortunately, there, it's a lot easier to get the get ones that are good now than it was when I first got into this. I have a few favorite beers um, in the in the summertime here in Virginia when it's humid. I've always got uh, my fridge is always heavily. St- uh, stocked with High Life. I love High Life. High Life is one of the best beers ever made. It's soft. Uh, I love like the the little bit of sulfur in it. Um, I, I think it's one of the most refreshing beers in the world when it's when it's hot. Uh, I, I usually pivot to um, Oktoberfest Vienna Lager styles in the in the fall. I drink a lot of those. Some of my year round favorites. I must always have some Guinness on hand. I think Guinness is a, is definitely one of my desert island beers. If maybe maybe the desert island beer, and then Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. I think that that's just a classic beer. It was one of the first craft beers that I was exposed to, and so it really kind of like you know triggers some some special chemistry in my brain. I think. And then these days, I spend a lot of time going to the grocery store, and I pull up my phone and I look on the Lupulin Exchange, and I see what. Which breweries um, have been buying hops on the Looping Exchange, and I and I I I, I go go after them because you know I'm like, hey, they're supporting my business. I want to support their business, and so um, I do that. And that's that's been really fun because I've been exposed to some like you know some really interesting hoppy beers that I probably otherwise wouldn't have tried, and so that's been really fun too. I'll throw a special shout out to Aslan and Alexandria. Thanks for your support this week. I'm drinking Baby Sharks and Power Moves. Was there a favorite type of malt? you particularly liked to use when you're when you're making beer oh yeah there's a couple um so 
uh, I, if I had to go way back early in my career to the early days back in Blacksburg, I love Gambrinus honey malt. Um, I, I thought oh, that yeah. was like a really interesting yeah. thing that could be added in, in, in small quantities to like really transform a beer. Some of the Vireman specialty malts uh, I've had really good experiences with, and there's been some go-tos in that in that wheelhouse as well. And then I would say that my ultimate favorite uh, later in my career was that um, the last brewery I worked at was a farm brewery. That was an awesome experience for me because I got um, to be involved with estate-grown barley and got to really learn a lot more about what was possible with the, with with seeing barley all the way from from the beginning to to beer. And I got to know and work with uh, work closely with my friend Jeff Bloom from Murphy and Rude, who's our, my local molster. So I would put up very highly on that list now i would say specialty malts from my local monster because jeff can he can literally do anything i want if i'm like hey jeff i need i need to hit these specs or can you can you go more in this direction like he'll do it you know and um and he, he makes great products i would suggest that folks um pay attention to what their local monsters are doing and see if you can't support them because some of them are making some some really amazing malts where do you think our the brewing industry is moving to in the United States? Like, you know, we've seen a lot of change over the last few years and and we know that more change is going to come. What direction yeah. do you think it's going to go? I don't know, man. I, you know, I kind of have my head in the sand with a lot of stuff like that. I don't read a lot of like, you know, um, when I was younger, I did, but I just don't have time anymore. So I, I, I'm really kind of out of the loop with a lot of what's going on in, in the industry. Um, obviously, uh, I was at the Hop Growers Convention. And so, you know, the, the BA talked about sort of, you know, the what they expect for the, the numbers in terms of, you know, growth or in this case, loss for, for last year. But obviously, there's a you know there's a there's this health um, health and fitness and wellness momentum in that category, right? And so I think you know that's why we're seeing obviously non-alcoholic um, growing a lot and uh, and things like that. So you know I think that's uh, there. I think that's going to continue to to be more and more important. But yeah, your guess is as good as mine, man. I I've, I'm not I'm not good at predicting like what the next beer trend is going to be because I tend to like stay out of the fold of a lot of that stuff. I'm, I, I, I miss the days of going to like some brew pubs and it's like, okay, yeah, they got a killer ESB and they got a really good Irish stout and a pale, you know, like, like there's some really amazing classic beer styles out there that people don't really make anymore. Hefeweizen, and like, it's pretty hard to find a good German wheat beer around here right now, which is a shame, you know? <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, so like, you know, I, I don't know. I'm a little bit like, I feel a little nostalgic and a little bit old right now because like, you know, I didn't jump on like the hazy IPA bandwagon early on. Like I, I, I came around to eventually appreciate it, but I wasn't sort of like, yeah, let's go this direction, you know? So, um, yeah, I, but I love classic beer styles that are well-made. Who would you credit as being you know, the most sort of seminal mentors for you in your brewing journey? Oh, wow. Um, that's a great question. I think um, there are a lot of folks from Master Brewers, right? So like, you know, when I joined Master Brewers in the early 2000s, it was very different, at least in my district, it was nothing like it is now. I mean, I was one of like two craft brewers that would show up to stuff and everybody else worked at, you know, the Coors plant um, in, in Elkton or the, um, um, or the or the Miller Brewery in Eden or yeah. in Williamsburg for AB, you know, and so um, uh, it was just such a different dynamic, right? But some of those guys, you know, from those big breweries, um, they were so willing to help me, and I was just I was I was just blown away by that, you know. And so very early in my career, I had this Rolodex of people 
that were working at these, you know, really big breweries that I would talk to regularly and say, Hey, I'm having this issue with it. And okay. You know? And so, you know, guys like Walter Heap, who will be on the show pretty soon. Um, and, um, uh, you know, uh, there, there's, there's so, there's a lot of them and, um, but yeah, it, it, that it was really awesome to have that resource, that network of like, not just within master brewers, but within our district, you know, um, of people that I could go to and, um, and, 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 and ask questions. Scott Zetterstrom, who, um, who we both worked with, um, you know, he, I, again, he, he's taught me a lot over the years. It's been funny. We have a weird relationship because I've, I've worked for him and he's worked for, and, and he's worked for me. Like he's hired me and I've hired him, you know, in different capacities over the years. Um, but um, he's someone that I, I continue to learn things from. There's some other people I want to mention too. Some, some folks that, um, that I look up to a lot. I was very actively involved with him when I, when I first got hired with Mark, you know, uh, to, to work for master brewers back then, you know, the executive committee was Horace Cunningham and Mike Sutton and Tom Eplett and Jim Kerr. Those are all people that I respect, you know, a whole lot. And, um, I think they've all done a lot of good in this industry and have, have done a lot for the industry. Um, so those are all people that, you know, I would say I see as mentors and that have, that have been incredibly um, helpful to me over the years. And then, and it was great working with Mark Sammartino. I mean, I really enjoyed those couple of years working with Mark. I, I miss talking to him on a daily basis. Um, he's an incredibly smart man and also just really kind and uh, with his time and, and willing to help anybody, you know, he'll talk to anybody. Um, you could probably call him up right now and ask him some obscure question about enzymes and he'd just talk to you for an hour. Um, we're all busy people, but even somebody like you might have time that you're not working on brewing. What else do you do in your life? What, 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 what lights you up? Yeah, not a whole lot. It's, it's pretty busy around here, but um, especially with four kids. So I, I spend a lot of time, my, um, spend as much time as I can with my kids. Um, my, um, I got three playing basketball right now. Um, I love going to basketball games. And what, like, what's the age range on them? So I got an almost 12 year old, uh, a nine year old, a seven year old and a two and a half year old. Oh my God. And, that's um, busy. Yeah, it's busy. So like, uh, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of driving people to practices and stuff, but, um, yeah, I love running the scoreboard at basketball. I love watching, you know, the girls play field hockey and stuff like that. And, um, so it's, a, uh, it, it, you know, I get a lot of enjoyment out of that, but I would say like, uh, I think what keeps me going right now, what really is my happy place is rowing. Like like rowing crew kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Nice. I was a rower in college, and I had an opportunity a few years ago to get back involved with it. And I helped coach our uh, local high school team here. I was a sweep rower in college, so I rowed. In, I was in an eight boat rowing sweep, which is one oar. And here we're two oars, so it's sculling, and we have smaller boats. There's singles, doubles, and quads. But really, really enjoyed it. It's been a amazing experience just working uh, from on all fronts working with the kids and helping them improve and then also pushing myself i actually missed the the master brewers annual conference this year because i was competing in my first regatta as an adult and so that was really awesome and boy what a workout that is huh yeah it is and um the reservoir where where we row it's um beaver creek here in crozet and it is just a beautiful, beautiful spot. And I mean, I love going out on that reservoir, especially early in the morning uh, or in the evenings when there's not a lot of other people out there. Sometimes I'm the only one out there in a single and it is just the most peaceful place on earth. And it is, um, I, I, I enjoy it quite a lot. And for anybody that wants to 
that doesn't know anything about rowing and wants to get a taste of rowing, I have to plug George Clooney's new movie, The Boys in the Boat, uh, which is based on um, a book by the same name, which is a fantastic book, well-known bestseller. And it is the story of these young men uh, that grew up in the Depression era and were rowing at University of Washington, not because they liked rowing, but because it gave them a bed and, a, and, a, and, and food to put on their table. And um, these young men just had incredible grit and they, they went on to outperform some of the upperclassmen. And ultimately, they went on to qualify to go row in the 1936 Olympics, which was the Nazi Olympics. And they go over there. The Jesse, and, Owens, the Jesse Owens era, huh? Yeah. And they go over there and they win gold uh, against all odds. And, and uh, it's a fantastic story. Um, so I would, occur, I would encourage anybody, even if you're not interested in rowing, it's a fantastic story just about American grit. That was John Bryce here on the Master Brewers Podcast. As always, check the show notes for links. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers Podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support for sponsors like Hopsteiner, Proximity Malt, BSG, Precision Fermentation, and the Lupulin Exchange. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers Podcast and that you appreciate their support. 